Our scripture today is from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Well, some of you have found the fans, and if uh, you haven't found a fan to cool yourself, this uh, also works, so feel free to use it. Um, welcome to Liberty Fairmount. I'm glad to be able to worship together. Let's take a moment and uh, pray together, and then we'll uh, review where we've been and also take a look at the passage that we have today. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence not as those in Jesus who are going to be judged, but those who in Jesus are made part of your family that are called, we're, we're able to call ourselves and serve you, call ourselves servants and serve you because of your work on our behalf, because of your gracefulness to us and your graciousness. Father, we ask for your presence. We ask that you would help us to, to read and pray and draw nearer to you through doing so. We need you so much. We ask that you would reveal more of your glory and your greatness and your love to us as we worship you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been looking at a series that deals with how to live right when your life goes wrong. And one of the things we decided in the fall was to track along with the home meetings so that the home meetings could study the same passages that we study on Sunday. And we'll have a chance to see a little bit later through this, this particular passage how important that is for, for God's people and followers of the Lord to be able to regularly look at his word together, study it together, uh, be drawn to him through it together. And we've looked at various things that we need through trials and troubles that come along as we go through those things, things of the gospel that we need to be able to weather them. And so some of the things we've looked at is the fact that Jesus is our only asset, that next to what he's done for us and next to who he is, uh, everything else that we might consider as benefit to ourselves is like a liability in comparison. We also looked at his upward call in our lives, that it's not just for heaven that he calls us, but it's for new heavens and new earth, that he's about the process of renewal and restoration, transformation in such a way that every tear that we experience now will be wiped away, and we need to remember that. 
We also looked at uh, the idea that, the, that our trials and troubles are like a lathe that God uses to shape us and transform us and draw us near to him. And things like how our responses themselves need to be in question when we have trials and troubles. That our responses themselves need the transforming relationship that we have with God through the gospel. And we looked at the fact that we need the truth of who God is personally And that bolsters us. To be able to see who he is personally through his truth bolsters us under trials and troubles. And last week we looked at adoration. The fact that we need to be able to adore God through the truth of who he is. Through the truth of who he is. So, this week we're going to look at responding in worship and obedience. Responding in worship and obedience to God's word. How do you respond in worship and obedience to God's word? We're going to look at verses 12 through 19 and appeal. Verses 12 through 19, we'll look at an appeal. In verses 7 through 11, we'll look at a warning. So an appeal and a warning. Okay. What do you have to do? In verses 12 through 19, we hear an appeal. The first thing we see is that we need to hear the word of God. God's voice must be heard. Look at Hebrews 3, verse 7. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, so it's necessary to hear it. Verse 15, very similar, right? As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So hearing the voice, and it goes on in in, in chapter 4, verse 7, there's something similar. Hearing his voice is important. So one of the things I want you to see when, when the author of Hebrews says that we must hear God's voice is an appeal that he makes just quoting Psalm 95. You see all the quotes in your scripture there? He's quoting Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is a psalm that unites worship and loyalty as two inseparable ideas. So worship and loyalty can't come apart. Can't come apart. You can't come in on Sunday and sing praises to God and not do what he says, not do what he says he's about, not live out of the agenda he has for you, not live uh, that shows forth his character, not live in such a way to do that. Worship must be expressed in action as well as in language. We use a lot of language in a service like this. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, it's not just enough to have the language. It's important. The gospel is not less than information, but it's more. It's a transforming information. It transforms your heart. Worship must be expressed in action as well as language. Those who choose to come into his presence with thanksgiving, Psalm 95 reads that way. Let me open that for you. Yeah. Psalm 95, some of you might remember, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. So those who choose to come into his presence with thanksgiving, Psalm 95, verse 2, must also come with attentiveness. Hearken to his voice. Obedience. So there's the necessity. They hang together. They've got to cling together. Why? We hear in another place... uh, in Scripture, 2 Timothy, Paul writes in 2 Timothy verse 3, 14 through 17, he writes this, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped with every good work. So here, too, in our passage, in the, in the passage in Hebrews, we see the same view of scripture when the writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 to teach Jewish Christians what God's word says, says, present tense, to them. Not what Psalm 95 said, past tense. These are things that happened in the past, and therefore pay attention to them. What, what the Spirit says, right? This is what the Spirit says that he's talking about. He says, therefore, in verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. So hearing his voice is important. He's showing them that God is still speaking to them through the Old Testament Scripture, Scripture that was written before they were alive. The Holy Spirit says through that scripture, and God is speaking to them through it. And just as the author quoted Psalm 95 a few times, a few times, to emphasize its importance and indicate how important it is, so we need to emphasize it and see how important it is for us to hear God's word. What does that mean for us? Well, one of the things we, and I did in the introduction was just to tell you about the reason we linked studying God's word here on Sunday with studying God's word in our home meetings is because we need to be able to do it corporately. We need to be able to do it together. It's not just a matter of reading God's word personally in a regular ongoing way, but we must hear the word of God publicly and study it corporately. And our home meetings do that. And later in his book, the author of Hebrews emphasizes the same point. In Hebrews 10.25, he writes this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day growing nearer. So we do need corporate involvement with the word, but that's not enough. We also need personal involvement with hearing God's word, hearing God through his word. What does that mean for you? It means you need to hear God personally in a regular, ongoing way. It means you need to take time to listen to him. You need to take time to listen to him in your own heart and in your own mind. When you're in a relationship with somebody... You spend time with them, right? You spend time together, and you hear each other, and you talk to one another, and you listen for what's going on in each other's lives and hearts and minds. It's the same with God. It's the exact same way. If you don't set time aside for God each day to grow in your spiritual life in this way, you're not going to make progress in spiritual maturity. The author says you need to hear God personally. All right, so we need to hear the, hear the word of God, but 3.12, we need to believe the word of God. It's one thing to hear God's voice. It's one thing to set a time aside daily and regularly to just read his word and, and seek him out and get to know him and have his spirit speak to you through his word. But you've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. You've got to accept what he says by responding in faith. It's like, you know, it's like the guy who you see wearing the bicycle, or riding the bicycle, he's not wearing his helmet. And he rides all around Philly, and he rides Kelly Drive and Lincoln Drive on his bike. Very dangerous thing to do in and of itself with a car, let alone a bike. And no helmet, right? No helmet. And friends say, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't ride your bike without the helmet. And the guy says, yeah, 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 I know, I know. And then one day, he's on Kelly Drive, and he gets smacked on one of those corners when the car is just, you know 
the cars unavoidably. You know that the tow trucks actually sit in different places along there every day just to take care of the accidents that happen. It is bound to happen because people think that they don't need to. So the guy on the bicycle is riding without his helmet, gets involved in an accident, he's hurt, he's recovering in the hospital, says, boy, you know, I really know now that I need to wear my helmet when I ride my bike. I knew before, but now I know. He experienced it in a different way. It's the same thing that we need to... It's, it's one thing to hear God's voice. It's another thing to accept what he says and respond in faith. Um, it's even more insidious... You know, I use the illustration of a bite, but it's even more insidious in a relationship. In our relationship with God, if we no longer accept what he says, falling away from him is inevitable. You see this in marriages all the time when one spouse no longer accepts what the other spouse says and the hearts begin to pull away from one another. Rather than beginning by asking what we've learned in Scripture to ask when trials and troubles are on, rather than the spouse beginning by saying, Lord, okay, this is difficult. I sense this thing with my spouse is difficult. What can I learn about my relationship with you in this? Instead of beginning there, what happens when you face troubles and trials in marriage is the first place a spouse who is in danger of falling away looks is to their circumstances and the demand that their circumstances and particularly their spouse change if they're to be who they're meant to be. You see, change is then put on the circumstance and the ability of the spouse to change themselves. What's the first person that that spouse goes to? The other spouse. It's your fault that I'm not bearing fruit of the Spirit in my life. You see? There's a pulling away. There's no longer an acceptance of of what the spouse has to say or what they do. It's the same in relationship with God. It's the very same thing. In 3.12, we see clearly that a person with an unbelieving heart will certainly fall away from the living God if we refuse to accept the living word. How can we hope to know the living God who is almighty? It's its almighty author. Now, this, in this letter, in 4.12, just a little further away, we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Faith in what God has said and in what Christ has done is the focus of the entire letter. Are you believing his word and his actions? Are you believing the gospel? And are you responding to it through faith? It's one of the things that's necessary here. So we need to hear the word. We need to obey the word. Uh, Sorry, we need to hear the word. We need to believe the word. We need to obey the word. Uh, Verses 18 and 19 and verse 12 in particularly. Verse 12 says, take care. And verses 18 and 19 say, the word must not only be heard but believed. Those who are disobedient lost their reward. Right? So the author is writing to Jewish Christians, and he's deeply convicted about God's word. And he says earlier in his book, that in his letter, that God has addressed his people in many and various ways, and with his own intense love for scripture, it's natural for the author to use the sad historical event of the wilderness wanderings as a parable or a type of Christian pilgrimage and its attending perils. These believers here in the letter And we, as believers, are urged to expend great effort on making progress in our pilgrimage, in their pilgrimage, in the gospel, so that no one may fall, verse 411, by the same sort of disobedience. 
Verse 4.11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may befall by the same sort of disobedience. So we need to hear it, and we need to believe it, and we need to obey it, but we also need to share it. 3.13 urges them to repeat the warnings and promises of God's word on a daily basis when they come to meet with one another, literally day by day in the original language. Friends, what does that mean? It means as sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters, as children of God's family by his grace, we are in need of daily corporate encouragement and exhortation. Daily. Now, one of the things you have to realize if you just pull back and think a little bit is that we are always counseling one another. We are always giving counsel to one another. Daily. In a regular way. In a repeated way. In an ongoing way. Questions like this come up in our friendships and our relationships all the time. Where can I find a good mechanic? Right? There's counsel. He hasn't called. What should I do? There's counsel that we give in that moment, right? I'm thinking about changing careers. Do you think it's a good idea? There's counsel given in that moment. It's natural. It's a natural part of what we do. And the author urges us that counseling each other in the warnings and promises of God from his word should be just as daily and just as natural as what we're already used to doing. So it's not that you don't know how to counsel. You do it every day. You do it on a variety of issues. The question is, do you know the promises of God and do you know the warnings of God as related to the kind of counsel that you're giving? You can't do that unless you hear his word and believe it and obey it. You've got to know him through it. Okay, moving on. We just had a litany of things that we must do if we believe the gospel. We must do them. The author of Hebrews says so. Jeff read the the passage in Romans. We must do those things. The passage in Romans says so. We must do them, but you can't. You will never do these things by trying really hard. You'll never do them just by trying really hard. Why? Why not? Because Christian hearts are not exempt from hardness and waywardness. Christian hearts are not exempt from hardness and waywardness. Even Christians can develop a hard heart. Look at... um, in our passage, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. There's a warning against it. Why? Because we can do it. We can harden our hearts. Or we can have, Christians can have and develop a wayward heart. Look at verse 10. Therefore I was provoked with a generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. We're not exempt from this. Christians are not exempt from this. What does it look like? The psalmist himself is reflecting on some unhappy incidents in the history of God's people. Some unhappy incidences. He reflects on uh, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 when the redeemed Israelites forgot the Lord's earlier deliverance and complained about their present circumstances. Exodus 17, 1 through 7 reads this way. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord God by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Trouble and trial. What's the author warning, warning against? They doubted the Lord's presence by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The names given to these places by the Lord... The names given to these places of revolt described in the Old Testament were literally exasperation and contention. God was deeply grieved by his people's doubt and disloyalty and swore that they would not enter into the rest which had been promised to them and prepared prepared for them. So what do you need to do? What do God's people need to do? You need to take care. The author's warning is to take care that you don't develop a hard heart that you don't develop a wayward heart by forgetting the Lord's deliverance and by complaining about present circumstances. Sometimes when I sit with some of you and we talk about what entering into temptation looks like and how not to enter into temptation, we talk about stages or levels of entering into temptation, right? And so when the pressure's on, when the pressure's on, you enter into temptation to forget and complain. Entering into temptation is a very small thing. It's a very subtle thing. And you're going along and say, I won't forget the promises that I have from you. I won't forget, Lord, what you've done for me in Jesus. I won't forget. I won't forget. I won't forget. And I'm not going to complain. You know that we're told, one of the commands is told that we're to do all things without complaining. I'm not going to complain. And then... The frustration of the situation is enough where the temptation comes along and says, ooh, I'm going to forget and complain. And you say, no, I'm not. I'm going, to, I'm going to remember Jesus, and I'm not going to complain. But in temptation, there's a momentary identification where that thing is slightly attractive. Oh, I'd like to complain. I'd like to think about the situation and what the best solution out would be. I'd, like, I'd really like to go there first, but I've got to remember Jesus. That sounds like victory, doesn't it? It sounds like, okay, I made my way past that temptation. You didn't. You entered in because there was a momentary consideration of, that's a beautiful thing. Forgetting the Lord for a moment and complaining and sharing the load with somebody else, sharing the load with somebody else, showing dissatisfaction. I looked up complaining in the dictionary. It means to show dissatisfaction with somebody. Come on, this is Philadelphia. How often do we show dissatisfaction with things? It's step one. It's entering into temptation when we do that. Right? Step two is where you begin to argue with instead of against the temptation to forget the gospel and to complain. You argue with it instead of against it. What does that mean? It means that you begin to give it a source of authority. Well, yeah, I can see your point. This is something to be complained against. This is not right. And right now, I feel a little distance from Jesus. And I feel a little distance from the gospel. And I certainly have a lot of opinions about how to fix this moment right now, that I don't, but I don't know how to tie it with the gospel. I don't know how to apply the gospel. 
You see? What you've done is you've invited the temptation to sit down and forget the gospel and to complain. You've invited to sit down and reason with you as though it has the voice of authority to be able to shape your life when only God has that voice. Remember whose voice is it that we're supposed to hear? Whose word is it that we're supposed to be shaped by? How does he speak to you? You're forgetting. You're already past entering into temptation. You've entered in, and you're arguing with it. You're giving it authority. And then, when you forget the gospel, and you're just going about your own way, and you're dissatisfied, and you're complaining, and you're uh, showing it, and you're bringing people down around you as you're showing it, and you're dragging them down, and you're dragging yourself down, the temptation to forget the gospel and the temptation to complain accuses you. And you call yourself a Christian. And you call yourself a Christian. How can you call yourself a Christian when you're giving in to your own strength? You see, it promised blessing, but it delivers curses in the moment. And that's a whole other level down. And often we live there and we don't even know that there's a way out. And beyond that is a final level which you're just spiraling down. And all you're doing is forgetting the gospel and you're complaining. And you need help there. You need the help of one another. You need help of friends you trust who can contradict you and say, I know that this feels like the realest thing on planet Earth, but it's not. You're not seeing clearly. You need to see clearly. You need to hear God's voice. Let me show you God's voice. Remember our duty to counsel every day? Encourage one another every day from God's word? Let me show you that. Let me show you from his word why it's wrong and why you have hope. Are you familiar enough with God's voice to be able to do that for someone else? Do you trust that those you love in this community are familiar with enough with God's word to give you what you need to do it for you when you're deaf, dumb, and blind in this cyclical down spiral of sin and temptation? Do you see why we can't just do those things, hear God's word, right? Hear his voice and uh, obey it and believe it and, you know, share it with others. You see why we can't just do that through trying really hard? Because we're desperate. We're in a desperate tailspin. And sometimes we don't even know there's a way out. But there is one who heard God perfectly, who believed God perfectly, who obeyed God perfectly, who shared God's voice perfectly. There is one who did it perfectly and wholly. Jesus took his rest in God's word alone. You see him doing it when he's tempted. When he's tempted, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. When he's on the cross and he's dying, He's bleeding scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that is? It's a prayer. He's quoting Psalm 22. He's praying it. He's using the tools of worship to worship. It's exactly what we need to do. And you have one who did. And you're not left alone to your own devices and your own trying. You remember the hymn, Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Rest in him and him alone, gloriously complete. It is not your record, it is not your effort that will free you to obey God like this. It is the fact that you draw close to Jesus and you know his record and you know that you're in it. And when God sees you, he sees Jesus on you, in you, around you, beside you, 
in front of you, behind you. And he knows the fullness of the gospel complete on you. And that enables you, that frees you to be able to live in a different way, to be able to hear and believe and obey and share God's word with the freedom that you've been won by Jesus in the gospel. That's the only way that you'll be able to hear God's word. Do you see him? Writing to Jewish Christians, the author of Hebrews was deeply convinced that God has addressed his people in many ways and on different occasions. We see that at the beginning of the book, if you read later. And we said that the author of this letter used the sad historical event of the wilderness wanderings as a parable or type of Christian pilgrimage and its attending perils. It's not at all unusual for New Testament writers to do this, by the way. They were people of the book. The difference was, in that day, this part of the book was their book. This part. And so they would use the things that they knew in Scripture to describe the gospel. They would describe the terms of the Christian life as, in terms of the new exodus. Luke describes Christ's death in those terms. He actually uses the word exodus in Luke 9. Paul declares that the Lord Jesus is the Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, who has been sacrificed for us. Peter says that Jesus is the lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians 10 says many such exodus allusions as Paul asserts that such events were written down for our instruction. In Romans 15, the author of Hebrews has similar approach to these Old Testament narratives. Our author here, the author of Hebrews, refers back to an incident. Exodus 17. God offered to stand in the rock and be stricken so that living water could flow. How was that going to happen? The staff of God's judgment hit God so that the people would be able to drink the water that would keep them alive. And in the gospel, Jesus was God in the rock. He took the judgment of God. You remember on the cross, he says, I thirst, and why have you forsaken me? So that his people would be able to drink living water he came to provide. The water the Israelites drank when they got it that day, when Moses struck God in the rock, it went away. They drank it, and they passed it on, and it went away. Just as we drink water, and we pass it on, and it goes away. The water Jesus gives to drink is everlasting water. In John 7... 37 through 39, Jesus says this. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We talked about that. At Easter this year and last year, it was necessary for Jesus to ascend so that he could send his spirit to testify with your heart to give you living water that will never go away, that will always quench your thirst. No matter what troubles and trials assail you, you can drink from him and his effort on your behalf. You know, our failure to respond in worship and obedience to God's word through what Jesus has done is just a functional rejection of what he did. It's a rejection of what he did. You'll never be able to hear. You'll never be able to believe. You'll never be able to obey. You'll never be able to share God 
until you first believe and rest in and rejoice in the one who has heard it on your behalf and believed it on your behalf and obeyed it on your behalf and shared it on your behalf perfectly. Your joy and confidence under trials and tribulation won't be sufficient unless you know yourself as in him, in his record, in the one who lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died. Remembering him frees your heart so that you can hear God differently with freedom. You can believe God differently with freedom. You can obey God differently with freedom. And you can share God differently with freedom. In Jesus, you're free to focus in on the particular ways you need to grow in hearing, believing, obeying, and sharing God. Free to focus on your weaknesses, bringing real growth rather than just the thing you're good at. I was watching the Detroit and Baltimore game yesterday. It's not something I get to do very often, and it was interesting because I, because I don't get to do it very often, I don't know the stats like a lot of you guys do. Um, but Jim Leland, you'll remember, was with Pittsburgh from 86 to 96, so that's how I remember him. But I got to see him with uh, the Detroit Tigers yesterday, 2006 to present, that's how long he's been with them. And there was an interesting discussion among the announcers that, that talked about, as the manager, Jim Lillian doesn't like batting practice. He doesn't like too much batting practice. And so the, one of the announcers read a quote by him and said, it just, it's not good for them to get too much. I understand if it's to work on a certain kind of pitch that you're having problems with. Then do a lot of batting practice. Or if it's trying to work on a specific problem in your swing, then do a lot of batting practice. But most players just swing for the fences and try to get it to go as far as they can, and they're not working on anything. And without missing a beat, the other announcer came up and said, that's exactly right. You know, the reason why players like to do batting practice so much is they like to feel good about themselves. They like the crack of the ball going 400 yards. It feels great. And Jim's point was that it does nothing to solve any problems. So in the same way... What does the word of God in your life through the gospel mean? It means you take it and you do it in community because you need help to see it, but you focus it on the areas that you need to grow. You need to let Jesus into there. You need to realize it. There is a, a book that we've, been, that we've recommended to our home meeting leaders as a supplemental reading for the uh, Bible studies that we do week to week. And... I would recommend each of them have it, and I would recommend, this is it, same title as our sermon series, right? But um, one of the things that they have in, in here, that the author has in here, on page 130, can you see it? It's a little diagram, a little diagram. It's got a circle, and it's, it's sort of like a flow to things. You see that? What I want you to do is ask your leader, your home meeting leader, to look at this chart. I want you to look at it and even get a copy of it if you can. This is one of the best little diagrams of what repentance looks like, which is what we're talking about. How do we respond to God's word? How do we worship with obedience? We turn from the things that we've been relying on and we turn to him. That's repentance. We can only do that through Jesus. Take some time and look at this this week. It's going to be helpful for you. Respond in worship and obedience to God's word because you're in Jesus who did that perfectly for you and he frees you to do it now. Let's go to him in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you first that it's not unclear what you want from us and who you want us to be, and your will is not unclear. Our circumstances can be unclear. It can be hard to understand and know uh, how to proceed through circumstances, especially difficult ones, with wisdom. But you're always very clear about who we're to be and what we're to believe about you. And so help us, through your spirit, through the fellowship and friendship of your spirit, ignite in us a freedom to approach you in the midst of trial, in the midst of trouble, and to know you more deeply, and to hear your word, and to be shaped by your word, and to believe it, and to obey it, and to be able to ultimately share it with one another, remind each other, and encourage each other daily that you are a God, and we are your people, and salvation rests alone in you. You are the Alpha and Omega, and we love you, Lord, and we thank you for first loving us, and we want to respond with a hope that's found in you. Be with us now as we continue to worship. It's in Jesus' name.